are listening to Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything. At Radiotopia, we now have a select group of amazing supporters that help us make all our shows possible. If you would like to have your company or product sponsor this podcast, then get in touch. Drop a line to sponsor at radiotopia.fm. Thanks. I want to tell you about another show that I know you'll love called 20,000 Hertz. It's all about surprising stories from the world of sound. They've explored mysteries like what is causing a strange hum coming from an island on the U.S.-Canada border? Why are there radio stations all over the world broadcasting people reading strange sequences of numbers? And what happened to the inventor of stereo sound? The show is completely family-friendly, and every episode is fascinating and full of ear candy. If you like science, mysteries, movies, video games, or history, you'll find lots to enjoy. Subscribe to 20,000 Hertz right here in your podcast player. Hertz is spelled H-E-R-T-Z. Once you see their swirly purple icon, you'll know you're in the right place. This installment is called That Was Real. Yeah. This shit is for real, y'all. This is for real. This is for real. This is Brooklyn, y'all. Brooklyn. New York. This is for real, y'all. March 29th, 2020. New York City was on lockdown. A man named John Lee pulled his car over in front of Brooklyn Hospital, took out his phone, and began live streaming. This is for real, y'all. This is for real. Sorry for the camera shaking, but this, this is for real, y'all. Over the past two weeks, New Yorkers had been pouring into the city's hospitals, sick from COVID. Now, they were starting to leave. Don't have room inside the hospital for bodies. They put them in the back of a freezer truck. This is for real. Father God, watch over us. John Lee prays as a red Lord forklift Jesus, spins and beeps. Orderlies dressed in blue move bodies wrapped in white into a long 18-wheeler. The streets are slick and the sky is gray. I'm in my car. I got my mask. I got everything. I got my gloves. But I got my windows up. I'm in my car. But I got to show y'all this. This is for real. This is for real. This is for real, y'all. I remember exactly when I first watched this video. It was the evening of our 14th day on the island. None of us were sick. I was finally starting to breathe. We didn't catch or bring the virus with us from New York. This is going on right now. This is live, y'all. His time is... 10.40, Sunday morning. This is down. This is down. Factoring in the six-hour time difference, I think I watched John Lee's video in France not too long after he posted it in New York. This is real. This is real. This is real. I think I felt something similar to what John Lee was feeling. This terrible scene of bodies being forklifted into a freezer truck surely would bring the naysayers and disbelievers to their senses. Family and friend, make sure you share this. This video was proof. They used the forklift. That the deaths were real. To put the body inside. That COVID was real. 
please share this. This is for real. This is for real. This is for real. This is for real. I'm going back home and lock myself in my house. God bless y'all. I'm going back home. I watched John Lee's video over and over again for hours that night. It was the first time, the first time since the crisis had begun that I felt something like hope. I actually went to sleep that night convinced that the world was going to come together. By necessity, of course, but still, I went to sleep that night totally convinced that COVID was going to bring the world together. The other day, I looked up John Lee's original Facebook post. His video had gotten hundreds of comments, mostly on the day that he posted it, March 29th, 2020. Shut up, stupid man. Stop repeating yourself. COVID is not real. Shut up, crazy man. Why are you outside if it's so dangerous? This is a false flag. You are a moron. The only thing real is your stupid voice. Shut up. COVID's not real. Shut the hell up. COVID is not real. If this pandemic wasn't enough of a wake-up call that we're not doing it right, I don't know what, what else we should be waiting for. Benjamin Bratton is the author of Revenge of the Real, a new book that attempts to make sense of how and why the West systemically failed in its response to the pandemic. The book is not all doom and gloom, though, because for Benjamin Bratton, the pandemic also illuminates a way forward. Our ability to address these kinds of issues, and we do have the ability to address these kinds of issues, we absolutely do, is dependent upon a kind of disenchantment or at least a demystification of our understanding of what the real is and how it is that it makes us possible and how it is that we can intervene in it. So I figured out you know, where I stood on surveillance pretty early on. I wouldn't say I was ever a member of the big tech resistance, but I was definitely opposed to the idea of companies like Facebook and Google getting more data or even access to more data, especially if the data would come from sensors embedded in the public realm, um, parks and streets. But reading your book has really forced me to rethink some of these positions. Um, and even more importantly, it's, it's got me wondering if perhaps I was just wrong, Well, like from the beginning. Let me back up a sec and say that when I talk about how it is that societies might be capable of public reason, that means how a society is able to know itself, make sense of itself on a holistic and granular level to produce models of itself so that it can act back upon itself 
in a way that is effective. That doesn't mean just big data. That doesn't mean just sensors. It doesn't just mean quantification. But it can't exclude those things in order for us to really expect for this capacity for collective self-organization to occur. If we think about the emergence of planetary scale computation over the last 50 years, and by that I mean all of the satellites and sensors and data centers and undersea cables and the billions of mobile phones that we carry around with us, just the emergence of computation, not as a type of object that's a computer, but as a massive planetary scale infrastructure. We've used that for lots of different things. One of the primary uses for this to date has been global advertising and the the modeling and indeed surveillance and prediction of the behaviors of individual people and users. And I would argue that this is a kind of world historical misuse of, of, a, of a fundamental technology. But we've also used it for other kinds of things, such as climate science, the very idea of climate change, the very concept of climate change itself is an epistemological accomplishment of planetary scale computation without the capacity to sense and make sense and model all of these complex planetary systems through this massive infrastructural apparatus, an accidental megastructure, I call it, the very idea of climate change wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be possible. And so the lesson to be drawn is then, okay, how can we think about this question of how societies sense and model and make sense of themselves in ways that look more like climate science and look less like global advertising. I just want to make it absolutely clear. I'm not arguing for more surveillance of individuals. I'm arguing for a shift in the logic of social sensing and modeling away from the individual, away from the prediction of consumer behavior, and towards the things that really matter. Yeah, I don't think it's unclear what you're arguing. I just think that it's also important to note that you know, platforms like Facebook and Google, they never say things like, we need more data to make more money on digital ads. They say things like, uh, we need more data to make the world a safer and better place, whether it be through, you know, social networks or smart cities that they want to offer. And, you know, I've never fallen for, you know, that kind of talk. But post-pandemic, it has become totally clear that we can't have it both ways like we can't demand things like test and trace and at the same time you know denounce all forms of sensing and data collection as police surveillance like we just can't and so yeah i think your argument's totally clear but it's the pandemic that's made you know at least me uh more open and, and receptive to your argument i appreciate your comment i do and i think my opinions on the matter were also a little bit closer to where you're describing yours were. And I am deeply sympathetic to many of the concerns that the kind of anti-surveillance movements have been focused on. But I, I, I've come to also depart from them in a certain sense that I think like they don't go far enough. The problem is that we're using and constructing the logic and form of, of society that the platforms are engaging with in relationship to private individuals in the first place. The, the private in human individual and what it is that you or I or anybody else may want to click on next or may want to look at next or shop for next is not, cannot 
be the base unit of how it is we conceive of, of not only what a society is, but how it is that we model that society. And so there's a, a deep critique of this logic of hyper-individualism, not only in the populist response to the pandemic, which we are seeing now once again in the anti-mask movement, in the anti-vaccine movement, in the anti lockdown movement of a, a kind of a fantastic construction of, of a kind of mythological individual sovereignty. But we also see it, unfortunately, in the anti-surveillance critique of this, that it's about a fortification of the libertarian individual who has private data. Like if Facebook has, has invented anything, it has invented the idea of individual private data, which in an epidemiological context, in the context of, you know, that makes no sense. You know, my exhale is your inhale and your exhale is my inhale. There's something more fundamental below this, a biochemical epidemiological reality to which we have certain kinds of obligations. The key idea here is that the problem in how we've been using planetary scale computation apparatuses has been an hyper individuation of the of the interests of this sensing and modeling. Facebook is the classic example of this. Facebook is broken at a fundamental level because its model of society is as individual, separated, atomic subjects who subsequently enter into semiotic relationships with one another. One of the things the pandemic makes clear is that no, societies are always assemblages. They're always multitudinous. They're always plural. They're always entangled. The book, The Revenge of the Real, is arguing for what I call a positive biopolitics, which simply means an understanding that the this modeling and composition and construction of life, the collective organization of, of life, which includes our health, it includes ecologies, it includes cities, it includes all the ways in which complex uh, heterogeneous forms of life can be cultivated and sustained into the deep time of the future is not just going to happen by itself. It will require our deepest and most creative forms of compositional reason in order for it to have a chance of succeeding. So you wrote your book as the pandemic was unfolding, um, like live in 2020 real time. Um, and the main story is, of course, the disastrous response to COVID in the West, um, of which our current thinking and deployment of technology uh, played a big role, as you just laid out. But you also catch the beginning of the response to the response. This is something that's more pronounced now with the anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, and the anything but a vacciners. Um, you jokingly call it at one point the revenge of the revenge of the real, which I really like, but uh, the ferocity and commitment of these movements actually caught me by surprise. Like I was not expecting them to double down when faced with the reality of COVID, but double down is exactly what they did. Yeah, and this goes hand in hand with the emergence of the populist wave of recent years, is there's a both a legitimate and illegitimate sense that governing institutions are not to be trusted and not the appropriate mechanism for the organization of society, which ends up producing a situation in which you don't have capable 
competent governing mechanisms because those capable and competent governing mechanisms were never architected and instantiated. And then when you have a situation in which you really need them, you don't have them, which only in certain extents reinforces people's ideas that governing responses are incompetent and incapable because they are living through the consequences of the, the incompetence of a government that they, in a certain sense, their mistrust has, has put into place. And it becomes a kind of vicious circle in this way. Society is being held hostage by a minority of its population who refuses for political reasons, psychological reasons, theological reasons, all manner of cultural reasons, refuses to engage with the underlying reality that makes their lives possible. That their sense of, their, of the deeply invested narrative that they have about the world is more important than the world that this, is, that this narrative is supposed to be describing to them. We are at this very strange moment where we have incredible technological capacity. We can produce an mRNA-based vaccine. In Moderna produced their vaccine candidate before the virus ever got to North America. That they did it from a digital model that they've been uploaded from China. The vaccine was invented before the virus got to North America. The incredible technological capability on the one hand, absolute social, political, self-owned incompetence on the other hand. This contrast between a capacity and capability, between our technical capacity and our social and political capability, this is what got us in this place in the first place. And whatever we return to has to be based on an understanding that that chasm has to be brought together. There's a very real reason as to why I fell sway to the idea that COVID would bring humanity together. Science fiction. In many of the post-apocalyptic stories that I loved and devoured as a child, the big event, whether it was a meteor or a war or a pandemic, forced humanity to come together and fight for their shared humanity. I realize now these stories played a much larger role in shaping my worldview than I ever understood. They provided me with a sense of ethics and an idea of justice. In the post-apocalyptic stories I read as a kid, the bad guys, the people who cling to the old ways of divisiveness and provincialism, don't survive. In fact, there's almost an implicit promise of punishment, or at least a comeuppance. A recent example, in Lawrence Wright's post-apocalyptic pandemic novel, The End of October, a novel he wrote just before COVID came on the scene, 
the Trump-like President of the United States character, demands that he and his family get the first doses of the experimental vaccine. And then he bleeds to death on live television. Those first few months of the pandemic were very difficult for me. Nothing I expected to happen, happened. COVID tested every single one of my assumptions, my convictions, and my beliefs. I lost my faith. Like I said, those first few months of the pandemic were extremely difficult. And then, on May 6th, 2020, I read something that snapped me out of my trance. It was a piece in the Times by the journalist Charlie Warzel. He made the case that America was on track to normalize the thousands of daily COVID deaths, just as Americans do with the thousands and thousands who die every year from guns. I know it sounds strange to say that this piece brought me comfort, but it did. Like I said, it snapped me out of my trance. And so when I crossed paths with Charlie Warzel last week at a conference in Hudson Yards, I decided to thank him. How you doing? I'm already rolling too. That's great. You've yeah. got the whole I've got, setup. I've got the whole thing ready to go. Not I, I, inconspicuous at all. We met outside next to the vessel, Thomas Heatherwick's interactive spiral selfie staircase. It's currently closed to the public. Four people have now jumped from the vessel. And rumor has it, the suicide staircase will never open again. Um, do you know Hudson Yards very well? No. Like, was it? Did it go up when you were here, or were you already gone? I I left in 2017, so I think yeah. it, I think it was mostly gone. Yeah. I I actually didn't even know about the all the people throwing themselves off this yeah. thing. Yeah, look there. look, this is kind of dark. They have to employ a full time guard to make sure no one goes in. Wow, that's yeah. wild. The story that that um, I heard last night was that is like the the only part of it that's like slightly darkly funny was when like there was a rash of people jumping off. They were like, we should, if we're going to charge like 20 bucks to disincentivize people. And it was like, I don't know, man. I don't know if, I don't know if money is the, the issue there. Anyway. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've had this feeling coming back to New York city, but uh, for me being gone 17 months, yeah. I have to say there's a lot of neighborhoods in New York that I think are really improved after the pandemic except this one this feels like more of a darker soulless play yeah no i totally feel that way so yeah so i i uh i didn't follow that many people closely during the pandemic but you were kind of one of my guiding stars actually it's so wild yeah. that's i mean that's it's very heartening to hear but also how how did that happen i don't i think maybe just because we have the personal montana connection and i love your work and uh and you were just kind of saying some things early on that I was really excited to, that were being said and I was curious how they would land. Yes. One of them being your thoughts about uh, the normalization of deaths. Yeah, so I think that was early May 2020. And somebody tweeted that, you know, 3,000 people dying a day. Like, how, like how, how is it that we're not like overwhelmed with emotion every second, right? Like how, how can that happen? And the only thing that that reminded me of was like shootings, right? Where it's like, 
you have this this terrible thing that, that happens and there's that usually that moment that like mass outpouring of like oh my god how could this happen how could we how could we be living in a society that like tolerates this and then you have to like the human mind just like like has to shut off at some point like you can't care that much and i just remember thinking like oh we do like we americans specifically do this with guns like we're going to do it with this i think before the pandemic I was doing a lot of the like writing about misinformation and propaganda and how online systems, you know, change each other and change us. And and I always thought that a lot of these, especially like the political polarization stuff, that like it could be overcome. That like you know the stakes for people just weren't high enough yet. It's like eventually there will be a disaster of magnitude that will help us kick us out of this and say okay this this is real we have to believe this and in that sense you believe this too i, I did I, I think that's why i was when i wrote that piece like i was genuinely really upset about about this fact it's like no this is just going to be what it's like every day so like we do have to just you know weave it into the fabric of, of our lives it's, i'm having a hard time doing that i really am like i think that i'm 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 the one thing I'm suffering the most after this last six months is this. How how are you doing with it? Yeah, not, not, not good. <laughs> Truly, like I, I mean, I think it just there's like a, a nagging like sadness about it. Um, I really, I really struggle with it, but I also think too. You can go, you can go two ways with it, right? You can go the nihilistic route, and you can say, well, it kind of doesn't matter. Like I, I just need to get mine. You know, like we're only gonna be around here so long and gonna get harder and harder and worse feel worse so I might as well make the money I can or whatever and you just live my my life and I don't I understand that rationally like I think at some point you know people do have to do things I think the other way about it is like it's never been more important to try to hang on to that and to try to talk about it and to try to you know I mean like I think I wrote that piece and on kind of all the pieces that I've written about, like the pandemic and that sort of stuff, like to, to reach out to like some, you know, someone like yourself who's like on the other side and, and sees that too. And it's like, can we just acknowledge what we're doing here? And it's not, it, you know, it's like the smallest piece of comfort, but it does, it, it also like, it is comfort, at least for me. That's sort of, I don't know what else I can do other than, you know, have other people see themselves in it you know and that's why it's, it's meaningful that you said that that you because that's how i was feeling and i i think i think it helps at least a little bit it's the tiniest thing to not feel alone we've got this other big looming crisis climate change and uh you know how in peanuts um uh when lucy always takes the football away from charlie brown sure. and he keeps falling for it there's a part of me that wants to revert to my old beliefs that like okay the next calamity is going to come along and we're all going to be in this together but i'm curious do you, do you feel like climate change might might be different this is the thing i've, I've thought a lot about with like what would COVID have been like if it was if it looked more like you know like say like Ebola right where there's like you're bleeding or like you know like where it's viscerally and it's not kept behind closed doors and it's not you know would that kind of pandemic have been different and I and I with that I do the same thing I'm like I think I I just think if you know if just if perhaps we're a little bit you know 
a little bit I don't not 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 even deadly just like more visceral right if you could if you could see it more not face mask but like leprosy mask to protect you to like go out and not have people scream at you yeah or or if it was I mean it's, it's such a gruesome horrible way to, to to die and yet it's like you know we don't most people don't know what it looks like or don't see it and you know you only get the occasional footage or whatever it you can live your life at a remove from it if it so I often have that sort of you know counterfactual of like well what would it what would it have been like would would it have changed in any way and I think that's that that's that hope hanging on and I think with the climate stuff like I think it is you know the disasters are just so visceral and you you know and you you experience them and they're easy they're more you know uh, use a crassly like telegenic right like they're they're made for made for a lot of TV and things like that and and you really do sort of feel it like when the wildfire stuff happens out west in Montana like I mean I'm have to close all my windows it's the sky is sepia like you smell smoke everywhere you feel like you know terrible and so that that is radicalizing I think and I think it will be for some people but I don't know you know there's also a way in which if we're always just going to be reactive to it and we're always going to be behind. And that's the thing that, that, that worries me. You know, I mean, you like whether it's another uh, coming pandemic or whether it's the climate stuff, like, I mean, the investments that, that, that need to be done now, you know, like these things need to happen now. And that's the one thing that I feel pretty confident is not going to happen. You have been listening to Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything. This installment is called That Was Real. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Walker, and it featured Benjamin Bratton and Charlie Warzel. Benjamin Bratton's new book is called Revenge of the Real, and Charlie Warzel's newsletter is called Galaxy Brain. This episode is part one in a brand new Theory of Everything miniseries, which is called New York After Rona. The Theory of Everything is a proud founding member of Radiotopia, home to some of the world's best podcasts. Find them all at radiotopia.fm. Hi, I'm Lindsey Graham, the host of Wondery's American History Tellers. In our latest series, we explore the emergence of a covert network of secret routes and safe houses known as the Underground Railroad, which worked to shepherd fugitive slaves to freedom in the decades before the Civil War. Listen to American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.